Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, Canadian kids and youth are watching their grades slip, according to a new report card from Participation. The pandemic clearly played a role in rising screen time and falling physical activity, but is it the whole story? We meet the founder and president of an apparel company called Nix, Joanna Griffiths, and ask how she defied doubters to build one of the most successful new apparel companies in Canada, and why she's decided to sell an 80% stake of the company for more than $300 million. We find out why Tesla founder Elon Musk took a sudden U-turn today on his offer to buy Twitter, abandoning his legal battle to back out of the deal to buy the social media platform and offering to go through with his original $45 billion bid. What does it mean for the world's richest man and the company? But first, Hockey Canada's board chair was in front of a parliamentary committee today, questioned about the organization's handling of alleged sexual assaults and how money was paid out in lawsuits. Andrea Skinner also defended Hockey Canada's leadership amid ever louder calls for resignations. But is the organization skating on ever thinner ice? Let's start tonight in Ottawa, where Hockey Canada's board chairs were clearly playing defense today under questioning by MPs from the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage. They grilled representatives from the sports governing body about its handling of those alleged sexual assaults and how money was paid out in lawsuits. Now, this all began, you may remember, with revelations that Hockey Canada had settled a $3.55 million sexual assault lawsuit in May uh, for an undisclosed sum a few weeks after it was filed without a full investigation. And now, after new revelations that the organization had not won, but two funds built with registration fees set aside to handle payouts for sexual assault claims, amongst other things. Information that was never really disclosed to parents and players. Today, Interim Board Chair Andrea Skinner and former Board Chair Michael Brindamore were questioned by members of that committee about why Hockey Canada's President and Chief Executive Officer had not been fired and why the agency hired an expensive public relations firm, Navigator, to conduct damage control this summer. What we have heard is that is that there is a call for for a new perspective. And so Hockey Canada has secured outside perspective and, and navigator is one of those perspectives but, but we're who, taking but steps who, to change how we communicate yeah um damage control is what they normally call it um and skinner says they continue to support the leaders of hockey canada in spite of the public outcry she says the organization needs stability during a tumultuous time uh, committee chair mp Hedy fry was was not satisfied with their answers our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced on the basis of what we consider to be substantial misinformation and, and unduly cynical attacks. You know, I appreciate that others disagree with us, but our positions are based on the information that we have and an understanding that Hockey Canada has an excellent reputation. Uh, Hedy Fry said that she felt they weren't taking responsibility. On Monday, Federal Minister of Sport Pascal Sedot said the organization treats sexual assault like an insurance problem rather than a systemic issue that needs to be addressed. She's also calling on Hockey Canada's leaders to step down, and she was clearly disappointed by what she heard today. At this point, with the current leadership, uh, I've, I don't have hope uh, that, they're, that they have the capacity to renew themselves from within. That's why I'm calling for uh, the 13 voting members to impose that change at Hockey Canada. Pascal St. owns there. Well, joining me now is Richard Powers. He's an associate professor who specializes in board director training at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. He's also the chair of the Commonwealth Sport Canada, or Commonwealth Sport Canada, rather. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Welcome. I, I enjoy being here. 
Yeah. I get, did you have a chance to watch today? I mean, it felt like a bit of uh, deja vu all over again from uh, the testimony earlier this year. But uh, Hockey Canada sticking to their guns, talking about their good reputation, their ability to sort themselves out through this crisis. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I, I certainly think the scoreboard has changed a little bit. I think the inquiry committees have made up of politicians. It's, I believe this is the third meeting that they've had with Hockey Canada officials. It's clearly three to them and zero to Hockey Canada. Why? I mean, this is not, you know, uh, this is not an organization made up of people who don't know what they're doing. Um, how come they keep coming off like they're on the defensive? I guess it's because we keep finding out things that they didn't tell anybody. Well, you know, the surprising, uh, I guess, disclosures that have come out the last few days involve the existence of a second fund. Now, in the last uh, meeting between the politicians and Hockey Canada, they asked about the first fund, which they were, I guess, forthcoming about. But really, guilty by omission. The other fund was sitting there, and they didn't mention it at all. And I think that if, uh, you know, if the CEO had any chance of staying in place at that point, I think he lost it in the last couple of days. I, I, I can't believe that they're not willing to make a change after both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Sport have told them in both official languages, we want to see change. Yeah, and, and then the revelation, of course, that they went out, like many organizations do, went out and hired crisis communicators to try to spin their way out of this, uh, to, you know, spin around their way out of this, if you can forgive the pun. That also came back to bite them today. It did. And, you know, I, I, again, I, I have a bit of a conflict. We work with uh, the Robin School, works with Navigator. I don't have any problem with them, them being involved in this particular case. But, uh, again, are they listening to their to the counsel that they're getting from the outside sources. Uh, I know the protocol that these source, that these companies use, and one of the main responsibilities of a board initially is to decide in terms of a crisis, in the existence of a crisis, where is this going to end and get there as quickly as possible. I think it's very clear that this is going to end with a change at the senior management level and a change at the board, and they just seem to be tone deaf at this stage. Which is, I mean, um, they brought in uh, Skinner as the new as the new interim board chair. She has some experience. I think they thought this might change the page a bit, but they keep running into this wall that is, you know, these other stories being dug up on them. They're not revealing this stuff. And you're right, there's nothing wrong with hiring. I mean, most organizations, when they're in crisis, bring in crisis communication help, right? It's it's kind of how it works. Um, but But what now then? I mean, Clearly today, they were saying, listen, we're going to stick through this. They even brought up things saying basically that they're being scapegoated, that hockey's being scapegoated well, here. Yeah. And, and, and Ms. Skinner you know, answered a direct question as to, well, there were two questions. One, what are the three traits that make the current CEO, the person to lead, the cultural change that they need? And quite frankly, she didn't answer that well. Uh, the other question was, they asked, what score would you give the current CA based on his performance to date? And she gave him an A. And, you know, I don't think anybody in the country would give this gentleman an A. And, you know, I have to be fair here. I don't know these people. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're making opinions based on the, the media. But, you know, we did hear what they said today, and it, it just didn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's happened here, I would think, is that they've just completely lost control of what was already a, a really bad 
bad story for them. I mean, just the the intolerance that a lot of that, and rightly so, that people have towards organizations not being transparent about these sorts of things. First, the allegations themselves. Second, the sort of the the allegations of a cover up using funds. I mean, it's all just gone so terribly wrong. Uh, and again, Scott Smith, who's the CEO, I mean, he's been there for for many, 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 many years. So what now? I mean, what, what happens now? We've they they sort of uh, stood tried to stood stand their ground today. Andrea Skinner did. Um, but it feels like this is going to have to come to a head at some point very soon. Well, you know, I think we have to be, you know, a, a bit fair to the people involved. Miss Skinner is a volunteer director. She has a full-time job. She has a family. She certainly didn't, uh, you know, she, she accepted the position as interim chair, knowing that this was going on, obviously. But it, it's tremendously stressful for her as an individual. But at the same time, she has stepped into that position and she has to take some ownership of what's happened. Unfortunately, she's been there on the board for five years. She has been part of the decision-making. And, you know, you look at the legal... I'm I'm a a lawyer, and I I look at some of the decisions that they've made regarding settlements. You know, they made a settlement with the the complaint from 2018 without doing an investigation. And it just doesn't make any sense. Do we know it was all true? You know, let's assume that it was, and that's why they paid. But, again, making decisions without complete information is one of the problems that a board always has but this board seems to be making decisions with little or no information based on the advice of outside parties they have to take more control over this and i do believe that we will see some change coming very very quickly how long can they leave current management in place when nobody is buying the story that they're putting out there I think that there is a significant risk to the organization if all of the board resigns and all of senior leadership is no longer there. I think that will be very impactful in a negative way to our boys and girls who are playing hockey. Will the light stay on on the rink? I don't know. We can't predict that. I still feel distressed and disturbed to some extent that there doesn't seem amongst the witnesses to be a sense of accountability. That was Andrea Skinner, the interim board chair of Hockey Canada today, testifying on Parliament Hill in front of a committee. MP Hetty Fry is the committee chair. You heard from her second there. Richard Powers is our guest this half hour. He's with the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. He's a he specializes in board director training, and obviously that's a um, governance is is part of this. So, what do you make of this idea that the lights might go off if uh, if Hockey Canada is somehow destabilized <laughs> destabilized here? Um, yeah, it's it just again. I mean, we talked. I guess we've talked about this quite a bit already. But it's uh, it, it was quite quite the performance today. Well, you know, she's under the gun, and I'm not sure these some of these answers were planned. She was probably you know speaking off the cuff a little bit, but no, that doesn't make any sense. Minor hockey is controlled by the associations and organizations across Canada. Uh, if if Hockey Canada went into a tailspin or whatever, I don't think it's going to affect the lights or the ability for for young boys and girls to play hockey. What it will do is perhaps put a halt on uh, how they progress through the ranks in hockey because Hockey Canada does control that. But again, that can be easily rectified. Now, you've spent time, I mean, you you know boards and sport, uh, and we've seen other organizations. Uh, Rowing Canada today had a report out that was quite scathing. What's going on? I mean, exactly. It feels like this is a real reckoning for a lot of governing bodies of sporting uh, associations in this country. What do you think is happening? And and is it a good thing? Well, it's a good thing that these things are coming to light. And and Rowing today, as you mentioned, Hockey Canada, uh, you know, even the sport I was involved in for a number of years, rugby, 
We've seen, you know, other organizations as well go through these types of issues. I think what's happening is that for, for such a long period of time, victims of abuse were afraid to speak up because they knew or felt that it would, uh, you know, terminate their careers. And, you know, for an athlete, that's what they're, that's what they're trying to do. They're looking to the professional ranks or they're looking for the, you know, the glory of the Olympics or one of the amateur games, Camp Pan Am games or the Commonwealth games. These these are real issues. If they complain about a particular coach, will they be sidelined? And nobody said anything. What is happening today is, and I think the hashtag MeToo movement was a, instrumental in, in kick-starting this, is that people are speaking up and they're taking that risk. Many athletes are waiting till they finish their careers until they speak up. And I think that will change as well. Uh, there's obviously change is needed in any sport, in any working environment. These issues come up. And a good organization recognizes that they're there and deals with them, you know, in advance, puts in protocols and systems in place, uh, you know, whistleblower lines, whatever you want to call it, so that people can make these, bring these issues to the forefront anonymously so as not to derail their careers in business and or sport. So that's the big change I think we're seeing. And within the organizations themselves, um, I know it's probably a different story in every organization. The gravity of it is different probably in every organization. But what allows these things to go on within these organizations? Is it is it they become fiefdoms for those who've been there? Is it that people have been there and involved in the sport for too long, so they have outsized power over, over the people that they're governing? I think that's a very good way to explain it. Remember, the board is there, and again, I, I want to be fair to Hockey Canada in some ways and and other organizations. In most sporting organizations, the boards are volunteers. I'm not aware of any directors of sporting organizations in Canada. They're being paid a fee to donate their time and expertise to to these governing bodies. So they are volunteers. They're good people. They're trying to do the best job they can. But they're there for such a fraction of the time. You know, we know the stats. They're there for perhaps 200 to 300 hours per year. Management is there 2,500 to 3,000 hours per year. It is impossible for the board to know as much as management. We refer to that as the information chasm. Boards are always making decisions with incomplete information, oftentimes using information that's provided by management. And, you know, it goes through their filter first. So it is a very tough position to be in. I applaud all the volunteer directors. Again, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of directors supporting amateur sport in Canada. You know, there are problems sometimes, but I think we also have to put this in perspective. Many other sports are governed properly and have made the necessary changes, and I am confident that Hockey Canada will make those changes as well. Yeah, it's important to point that out, uh, not not to be overly critical here as well at the same time. But again, to go back to that idea of, of the power that lies within management, these, it feels like these fiefdoms are created within management of these organizations sometimes, and it's very hard to move people out. They, they have incredible amounts of power. And I think that part of what we're seeing here is that incredible power imbalance that has existed and now people speaking out and fighting back. Well, it really is. And it comes down to who controls the purse strings. You know, in Hockey Canada, like many other organizations, you know, it is the senior executives that present plans to the board for approval. You know, they've done the homework. They know where they're going to put their, the monies that they raise. It, uh, again, it's very difficult for the board to know as much as management. And again, you're sort of held captive by management in the information that you get. So, uh, again, in a sense, I do have some some compassion for the for the board at Hockey Canada. But the bottom line is, this has 
this these issues have been revealed. We know that they're true. And, you know, get off your butt, make some changes and, and make the tough decisions. And those tough decisions involve change. Well, Richard Powers, thank you so much for your perspective on this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. A pleasure. Just think about it. Do it, do it, do it. Participation. Get with the action. Do it, do it, do it. Get with the action. Participation. Get with the action. Participation. Do I was dancing in my seat when I found that on YouTube today. Speaking of activity. Remember that ad from back in the 80s? You know, I don't think I'd heard that song in ages. And the moment it started, I knew all the words. I mean, there weren't many words, but anyway, participation. Every time I hear the name, I always identify it, of course, with those old ads from the 80s. Well, um, that was the kind of stuff we watched back then to get us moving. Uh, There weren't quite as many distractions back then, mind you. Uh, But today, for the third time in a row, the participation report card is out and it's giving kids and youth an overall grade of F, which takes into account physical activity, screen time, and sleep recommendations. Now, obviously, the pandemic played a role in all this, but is it the entire story? Joining me now with more on the report card and what can be done to get kids moving again is Dr. Nicholas Cusick. He's a research fellow at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, tell me a bit about this report card. I mean, it's not shocking that through the pandemic, the grades would have gone down, but is that the whole, is that the whole story here? Uh, it, it's not the whole story. And, and I guess we've already talked about how the physical activity grade went down, but it, it is a secondary story that the grades didn't go down even further. So there, there were some silver linings or some creative solutions that were found throughout the pandemic where we saw parents and communities finding ways to increase active transportation and increase active play. So active transportation, wheeling, scooting, biking to locations, and uh, active play, a lot of that nature-based or outdoor time um, as a family. Yeah, because I guess it was a D for physical activity, but uh, what was really dragging down the marks was the F for screen time, right? And that's not a huge surprise. So maybe we'll start with the, with the F for screen time. We saw screen time go up a fair amount, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And so thinking about when the pandemic started, you know, there was stay-at-home orders. Um, school had to become virtual at that point. And, and when we talk about screen time for these grades, it's an important distinction to say that this is recreational screen time, not educational screen time. But they're still on their computers a lot, so this may lead to those behaviors as, as sort of a byproduct of that. And so we saw that only 18% of kids were meeting the screen time recommendations within the Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. So that being no more than two hours per day of recreational screen time. And that's why we assign that grade of an F as compared to in 2020 when we saw a D plus. I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Kuzik. He's a research fellow at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. We're just going to try and reconnect, uh, Dr. Kuzik. We're having a bit of trouble with the audio, so just give us a second here, and we'll be right back. We'll talk a bit more about that uh, that D in physical activity as opposed to a D plus back in 2020. Um, important to note that 
the screen time F was not just about spending more time for schoolwork. It really, it really is about recreational um, time. But a silver lining in there, again, as Dr. Cusick was pointing out, that these grades could have been lower given the isolation, the forced isolation, uh, and the lack of uh, you know getting together and so on that happened through the uh, years of the pandemic, the early years uh, of the pandemic, less so now, but uh, still, I know I have no doubt there are some limitations out there. And uh, this is obviously a way to uh, to alert parents to the amount of physical activity that their kids are doing. Uh, it's about 28% were getting the recommended 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per day right now, kids and youth, 28% only. Um, we're getting that amount of exercise, which is what's recommended. Uh, and therefore, the D, which is down from a D plus in 2020. And when we get Dr. Cusick back on the line, we'll talk a bit more about why that uh, why that grade dropped. Because in fact, we would may have thought that in 2021, it would have shifted a bit, and maybe gone back up a little while after the uh, the early days of the pandemic, where the the full isolations were in. Um, other than that, of course, we're and Dr. Kuzik, you're back. Thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for reconnecting. Uh, I was talking about the drop from D plus to uh, to D when it came to physical activity, and only 28 percent of uh, those uh, reported on, we're getting the recommended sixty minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. That does seem low, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean, if we want to contextualize that even a little bit further, this is the first drop since two thousand seven, since uh, the two thousand seven grade. And since 2007 up until 2020, it was either remaining the same or slightly increasing. So we were seeing those incremental increases in children's physical activity in Canada up until these COVID-19 specific grades. And do you think in this case, this was, again, all related to, because I gather it dropped from 2020, but then early 2020, we weren't in the pandemic yet. So it was all pandemic related. Do you think this, this fall from D to D, D plus to D? Yeah, and, and another important distinction is that all of these grades were COVID-specific. So we, we tried to incorporate only COVID-related data. So you would have been seeing, you know, these drops in physical activity associated with no longer being able to attend school in person or slight restrictions to how you attended school, you know, closures to sport competitions, uh, community rec centers no longer having programming available. So a lot of those are disruptions of the physical activity opportunities for kids. Yeah, you must have seen this just through your work as well. It, it struck me as such a difficult time to be to be a kid. And, and I mean, when you look at that decrease, the increase in screen time and the decrease in physical activity, uh, you wouldn't want to blame kids for this, right? It feels like they were cooped up to some extent. No, no, you definitely don't want to blame the kids or, or the parents or really anyone. I mean, we're all trying to think of creative solutions to to stay happy, healthy, and active throughout these very unprecedented times. What about the sleep recommendations? I know that comes into it as well, and that's that's sort of part of the triumvirate here is, is sleep. Did you notice changes there that were of anything of concern? Sleep was one of the ones that remained consistent. Um, and so within some of the reviews that we were looking at, we found that sleep didn't decrease. It may have increased slightly. It may have stayed the same. It, it was a little bit of a gray area, but there was some shifts as well. So children were uh, going to bed later at night and waking up later in the morning, but tended to be the duration was about the same. 
As we um, as things change, as they have, we don't know what will happen in the future, of course. But as things, uh, as, restri- as sort of uh, mandates and so on have been eased, I-, I do notice just even where I am, there are a lot more kids out and about doing stuff. Uh, do you expect these numbers to start to shift again? Was this really just a snapshot in time? And uh, I guess there is still room for improvement, though, uh, given given the report cards aren't always glow- as glowing as they might be um, in a perfect world. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think um, you touched on a really important point there, you know, seeing kids out and about. And, and that does come back to one of the silver linings that we saw within these COVID data is that um, active play did increase in terms of the grade. And, and so kids were getting outside more. And we really hope that as that silver lining, it's very weird to say silver lining in terms of COVID, but um, we, we hope that, you know, it's a bit of a catalyst for future physical activity opportunities for active play and for outdoor time for children. We sort of learn from this lesson. Do you think, in other words, that, that parents and, and because there was so the opportunities became so limited that there was actually a focus on it that may not have been there before? I, I think, yes, uh, that there would have been a focus or it, it was just sort of the, one of the creative solutions that they came up with and as they were uh, being art teachers and PE teachers and, you know, all of those extra tasks that were put on parents during the pandemic. We're talking about kids and physical activity this half hour with Dr. Nicholas Cusick. He's a research fellow at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO, on the day that Participation released their new report card on kids' physical activity, screen time, sleep. Um, the grades slipped a bit. We were talking about why that was. Uh, pandemic obviously played a big role in all of this. Uh, Dr. Cusick, what's the, when you, this report is released, really, I guess you're trying to send, get a message out there about physical activity and the importance of it. Uh, what do you hope the reception, reception is this year, considering how different the circumstances have been of late? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, sort of our knowledge translation tool to, I mean, first and foremost, assess how physical activity was for Canadian children and youth over this uh, time frame. And then after that point, uh, it really comes to, like any report card, what can we do to improve these grades? And so we have to start thinking about what messages we can give to parents and caregivers to increase physical activity. So so things like the active transportation, you keep promoting that and finding ways to get out there and, and think of alternative ways of stopping vehicles to get to locations as a family. And active play as well, you know, spending time in nature as a family, uh, being active together, thinking about activities, especially as winter's coming, starting to plan in that regard. Uh, if we're thinking about sedentary behaviors as well, you know, we saw that F grade. So coming up with something like a uh, family media plan. So thinking of ways as a family to set limits around how much screen time viewing is acceptable in your household, you know, prioritizing screen-free family time, removing screens from children's bedrooms and having screen-free family meals as well. I guess these are things that became more difficult through the uh, the early days of, of the pandemic. And now there's sort of a reset that, that's going to go on to some extent where we have to try and reestablish some of those, some of those, those rules, I guess, is, is, is probably important at this point. Um, you wouldn't want to see another F in screen time, uh, clearly. No, no, definitely wouldn't want to see that. And, and I mean, it, it'll be difficult, certainly. Um, but hopefully we can have it bounce up to the level that it was previously. And even better would be going a grade above what had been in the past. 
you said earlier that you'd seen the physical activity grade improve uh, consistently since, uh, you know, over the last 15 years, really. Uh, what was that due to? And will it, do you think it'll continue now that we're, we're, we're moving towards a sli- what feels like a slightly different phase of this pandemic? Yeah, so since 2007, it remained the same or increased consistently. And it's small incremental steps. Uh, it, it's fairly difficult for me to ascertain, you know, what had caused um, those increases or slight increases over the years. But uh, moving forward, you know, we can think, again, about uh, the active transportation, active play, and, and finding those creative solutions to improve the physical activity beyond the normal that we were used to. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I suppose what, what it really boils down to is just uh, being aware of it. I think I think I, I get the impression people are more aware of it now than maybe maybe a while back, although it feels like you've been repeating this message for a very long time and it has success, but not always the kind of success I would imagine you would hope for. Yeah, absolutely. And been uh, chipping away at it, slow incremental steps towards, you know, the goal of an active, less sedentary uh, children and youth in Canada. Well, Dr. Kuzik, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll check in next year to see if uh, see how the grades improve given, uh, given uh, this report card and the kind of uh, publicity it got today. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. There is nothing quite as impressive as someone who starts with an idea, notices a gap in the market, starts with an idea with little experience, builds it up, does all their homework, goes and gets an MBA, pursues the dream, shakes off the doubters, including those who thought that her product was too niche and therefore would not work and wouldn't finance it, and then proves them all wrong. Well, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, in the case of my next guest. There was some big news in the Canadian business world last week. I don't know if you saw it. Swedish company Essity acquired an 80% stake in Toronto-based underwear brand Nix for approximately $320 million. $320 million. It's a lot of money. Uh, Nick's founder and president, Joanna Griffiths, will stay on as the head of the company and retains uh, the remaining 20% share. Uh, Still, according to reports, the sale is one of the largest publicly disclosed private sales of a direct-to-consumer company by a female founder, in this case, Joanna Griffiths. And it adds another chapter to what started off in 2013 when the company was founded, but even earlier than that, when Joanna first came up with this idea, then went and got an MBA to try to build on it and how she managed to grow Nix into one of the most successful apparel companies or new apparel companies in North America. And she did it her way with more and uh, some advice for you on what it takes to succeed in business as well. Joanna Joanna Griffiths joins me now. She, of course, is the president and the founder of Nix. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I guess I I mean, I should say congratulations. This must be a huge decision um, to partner, I suppose, would be the right word, but in other words, sort of seed a certain amount of control. Uh, what made you decide it was the right time? Yeah, I think that the word partner that you used, I, I really like. Um, I wasn't looking to sell the business, to sell Nix. Um, it actually, it wasn't really on my radar. Uh, really felt like we would continue to operate independently for um, the foreseeable future. But um, I was really excited when I started talking to the folks at SD about what a partnership could look like and what having a strategic partner could mean for the brand, could mean for our company. Um, 
and really start building our legacy in a brand that is here in the long run um, and and one that we feel has a ton of potential and just do that uh, with a partner on side. Because I, I, I've heard you once say that uh, that bringing on a business partner is it's harder to get rid of a business partner than it is to get divorced. So you have to be very, very careful about who it is that you uh, that you partnered up with, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's right. And I mean, especially this decision um, with with us to be purchasing 80 percent of the business. Um, so they're they're really the majority owners. Um, and so it is it is a very um, important decision, I think. Any person who's founded a company and who's been at it for a short time or a long time, like I have, I mean, it's it's been um, almost ten years at this point. It's a it's a very emotional decision and uh, a big life life moment, life life decision to decide um, to sell your company. And so, um, definitely a lot of of thought and consideration went into this, and um, a lot of time spent with um, with the folks at Essity, getting to know them, understanding their values, and and making sure that we were aligned on the vision of what's next for Nix. Because for listeners to understand, this doesn't go back to when you launched. This actually goes back prior to that, even during your MBA. This is where the genesis of this idea came from to create this company. How did you? How did this all begin? And and I gather, you I mean this was really something that you that you really devoted a lot of time to from the get-go and built not all by yourself, but um, but you were the driving force. Yeah. So I, I came up for the with the idea for Nix. I mean, gosh, it must have been in 2008. So a really long time ago. And then uh, went and did an MBA and spent the entire time that I was doing my MBA really working on Nix, um, talking to tons and tons of people, understanding what they were looking for from intimate apparel products, what they liked, what they didn't like, um, and doing a lot of the research. And I'm what's called an accidental entrepreneur. So I had no intention of starting a business, but through those conversations and that research I did, I picked up on the opportunity to really have a big impact on people's lives. And so we launched with leak-proof underwear, also known as period underwear. Uh, it's a product that didn't exist at the time. It sort of dreamed up while I was at school. And then fast forward to today, and it's it's becoming a billion-dollar category. So um, it's really changing the way that people live their everyday lives. And I'm extremely grateful for sort of the, the interest and adoption that has come with that, that product idea that I had. Gosh, I guess... 15 years ago now. Wow. Time flies, right? I mean, that's just the way you've been busy. You've been very busy. I was, I, you know, reading about the history of the idea and the company, I was shocked to, to find out that it wasn't out there. I also realized that you, when you presented this idea, a lot of people thought it wouldn't work. That's right. Well, I think the reason why it wasn't out there is that for a very long time, a lot of women centric, and I'm doing that in quotation marks, challenges or problems have been overlooked. And that's just because we simply didn't have enough women running companies. And so this is a, a classic example where it took a woman or someone who menstruates rather to, to start this business. And I did have a hard time when I first got started. I think people had a really challenging time thinking about how big the category could be. If you can imagine, there's not a lot of market comps when you're inventing a product and kind of creating a net new category. And so a lot of the times, especially in the early days when I was raising money um, in a traditionally you know, male-dominated industry, the investors didn't really see what the need was, didn't really understand um, what the potential could be. And so I got a lot of feedback, both when I first started and along the way, that 
it was, you know, a great business, a great idea, but it was too niche or women often get told that they have um, a quote unquote lifestyle business. So not something that's really investable, but something that could, you know, be a great way to maintain a lifestyle as a founder or CEO. And so I got a lot of that feedback along the way and received a, a lot of kind of rejection for lack of a better way to describe it. And uh, really had to kind of power through to find find the people that believed in me, that believed in our team, that believed in what we were trying to accomplish um, and, and overcoming a lot of uh, systemic bias along the way. And for anyone out there who thinks that this may sometimes you you know come up with a great idea and then everything just falls into place, you had to crowdfund. And then I, I gather you had to completely change your business model, not too, too far into this adventure. Yeah, pivot or die, I guess is the name of the game. So I I mean, I took a a bunch of different pivots along the way. Um, We did, we started with crowdfunding. When I had challenges raising money in the early days, had to go back to crowdfunding as well. So to say that Nix is a company that was built by our customers is not an overstatement. Um, We really have been created by our community, which we're so grateful for. We transitioned out of wholesale to be a direct-to-consumer brand where we exclusively sell through our own websites and now our own retail stores back in um, 2016, 2017. And that was a huge pivot for us as an organization, but um, ultimately decided that we had to focus and um, it was uh, a, a big decision, but probably the best one we ever made because that really is when we started to to grow. How have you managed to to sort of to maintain the growth, but not grow too fast? Because I know that's always a challenge for a company that's growing is to try to control the growth in a way that's sustainable. Yeah, I, you know, I think in the beginning, it was not taking on um, an extreme amount of outside capital. So really managing our own growth out of um, the proceeds of the business and being thoughtful in that approach. I think uh, as a founder and CEO, one of your... Um, biggest roles is to learn how to say no to things. And it's really easy to want to say yes to everything, every opportunity. But um, the truth is, is that you need focus and you need relentless kind of uh, decision-making abilities. And so I like to say that there were about three years there where I think the only thing I said was no. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we did that because we, we needed to focus. We needed to get good at a couple of things. um, And uh, and run a business where we could deliver great products to our customers, respond to people on time, um, where they really knew that they could count on us. Joanna Griffiths is with us this half hour. She's the president and founder of Nix. Um, Leakproof Underwear was the initial where it began. It's become much more than that. It's also recently been an 80% stake has been sold to a Swedish company named Essity. So a huge deal. Uh, I think the biggest, if I was reading correctly, Joanna, the biggest for a female founder in, in North America, or there was, I'm trying to remember what the, there was a qualifier there that was, again, very impressive beyond everything else that's impressive about the company. Yeah. So from our research, it's the the biggest private exit by a, a female founder in Canada, at least that's been disclosed. Um, so that's the stat there. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, congratulations again. I mean, I, one of the things that I found interesting, and you've mentioned this in past interviews, was that um, when you were went back to try to raise more capital, when the company started to start to grow and you felt like you really needed it, you once again encountered um, people saying, because you were pregnant with twins, uh, twin girls. And at the time, people were saying, well, we're not so sure. 
we're not so sure. So you've had to sort of confront this again and again and again as this company has grown. I mean, that time it was literally unbelievable, in my opinion. <laughs> yes, so. well, because you had the, you had the proof of concept, right? Like it was working. Right? Uh, exactly. I, I mean, I faced that criticism early, and and then I, I raised our Series A round when I was pregnant with my first child, um, and uh, got some some criticism through that process. But I I really felt that when we went out to raise our Series B, that the business had enough traction, and we had a great team that. Um, I wasn't going to face face that same feedback. And so it was um, highly, highly disappointing to continuously be met with the same response. Um, and so the, in, in that occasion, we were working with an investment banker. Um, we were raising a significant round of capital, uh, just over $50 million. And so um, I created a pretty simple rule, which was that any potential investor who made criticisms about my pregnancy or who called into question my ability to run a company and be a mother was removed from the process. They were not allowed anywhere near our company <laughs> and certainly were not allowed to own part of it, which is what investing is. Um, and uh, that story came out last year. And um, I think it ended up, the newspaper that ran it, it ended up being one of, if not the most shared article in the history of the business section because so many people um could relate or at least um recognize that 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 um that was a pretty big statement to make it was uh and and at, at the time were you at all concerned about the consequences or i i gather just from reading that and others that that really what this was about was shared values and that the money itself would you, you didn't want the money if the values weren't there I had, I had, I honestly would rather take no money at all than have an investor who didn't um, believe that in 20, 2021, which was the year at the time, um, women could be parents and run companies. I would rather go back to crowdfunding, not take a salary, you know, like do anything than let those people anywhere near me. Um, and so that was a pretty easy decision. What was not was I was actually very, very nervous when I found out that that was the the headline that the newspaper was going to run with. And um, as far as we've come, I was nervous that people were going to respond negatively to it and, and think that I was entitled um, instead of empowered. And so that I think um, was a good lesson, which is, um, you know, doing the right thing is always the right thing. And uh, was was really positively overwhelmed. It was actually my dad who I called and he said, Joanna, don't worry about this. This, this headline is important. You know, a lot of people need to read this. They need to understand that this is what happens. And he was right. Yeah, it's still hard to be the one leading from the front, though, isn't it, on these issues, no matter what. Like, it's always because it's your business. You have staff. You have, you know, you have you know, you, you're, yeah, it's, it must be, um, I mean, obviously it worked out, right. That was the important part. Uh, but I can imagine it's hard to be the one, the one right. in these issues it's all, I mean, now though, I mean, what, what next for, for, for you, what next for the, for the company now that you're in this, in this new situation? I mean, one of the beautiful things about Nix is that every day I feel like we're just getting started and that truly could not be, more real than it, it feels right now. I'm I'm very excited to have a new partner um, and a long-term partner, a long-term home for the brand. I think that the work that we do as an organization is incredibly important, um, both within Canada and elsewhere. And um, I'm, I'm so excited to build a legacy company here in this country. 
And then beyond that, um, it's a whole lot of the same, which is what I say to my team. And it's the truth. I mean, they bought us because we were doing a lot of things right. And so it's really continuing to do what we're doing, um, continuing to make great products, continuing to use our platform to tell incredible stories and continuing to build, which is um, as an entrepreneur, what I love to do. Um, I love I love building this company. And, and and just for for you, I mean, people always want to know when it comes to CEOs what they do and don't do. I gather you do take weekends off if you can. I don't know if you've taken many off lately, but uh, but I know you take weekends off. And I gather that that or your your, your husband works with you too, uh, so it is a bit of a family business in some senses. Yeah, my husband joined the company about five years ago, so we were about five years in, and we made the decision that it was what was going to work best, best for our life. Um, we had a lot riding on this, and so why not be in on it together? Um, and so we've we've been um, successful at making that work. It's not for everyone, but it, it really works for us. And then I do take weekends off. I mean, the occasional weekend I'll work, but um, I learned a long time ago that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and... Uh, as a person leading a company that it's so important to be in a, a good headspace to show up for your team during the week. Um, and, and also to show up for your family, um, and friends and whatever it is that kind of is important to you outside of work. And so, um, I don't work weekends. Good. I mean, because I, I imagine what happens is you end up feeling like you're letting someone down when that creeps in, that can't be healthy. If you're trying to stay focused on both on being six, at least on, on being present in both places. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and just making sure that, uh, I take care of myself, you know, so that I can take care of others. So that's been, that's been something I've learned along the way. I know this is a billion dollar question, but for all those entrepreneurs out there or small business people or people who are building up a dream like you did so many years ago, uh, 14 now, 2008, what advice, what, 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 few words of advice would you give to them when it comes to the tough times and trying to get through the inevitable walls that you run into? Attach yourself and your company to a mission that's bigger than you. Um, so we've done that at Nix from the very, very beginning. We exist to empower people to be unapologetically free. Everything we do is in pursuit of that mission. And what it meant was that it made the hard days easier to get out of bed and go to work. It meant that I could recruit much better people who are smarter than me to come and work with because they believed in that mission. And I, I, I think it also helps you feel like you're not just building or, or, you know, surviving, but you're doing it with purpose and intention. And so that is my number one tip. And I think the world would be better off if we all did it too. Gerardo Griffiths, thank you so much for your time and uh, congratulations. Thank you. The world's richest man is about to spend a sizable chunk of his wealth on something he doesn't want. Twitter. Elon Musk is abandoning his legal battle to back out of buying Twitter by offering to go through with his original $45 billion U.S. bid for the social media platform. The Tesla CEO made the offer in a letter to Twitter, which the company disclosed in a filing Tuesday with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The offer comes just two weeks before Twitter's lawsuit seeking to force Musk to go through with the sale goes to trial in Delaware. For months, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk has been trying to get out of a $45 billion deal to buy Twitter. Musk has said the social media platform is laden with devaluing fake accounts that Twitter had failed to disclose. Twitter always denied it, and now a source familiar with the matter told ABC News Musk has agreed to go forward with the purchase at the original price of $54.20 per share. 
If Twitter agrees, the two sides would avoid a trial at the Delaware Chancery Court that was supposed to begin this month. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. So Musk didn't want it. He denigrated it in not wanting it. So what's going on? Joining me now to explain is Dan Ives. He's Managing Director and Senior Equity Research Analyst covering the tech sector at Wedbush Securities in New York. Thanks for your time. Great to be here. So uh, decipher this one for us. What's going on? Uh, a sudden, a U-turn, so to speak. It's a U-turn. and it, Ultimately, I think from Musk, it was really the writing was in the wall going into Delaware court that he was going to lose that battle versus Twitter. And I think recognize that the obstacles were high and the path of least resistance was ultimately to, to go with the original Twitter deal of 5420. And now we believe by next week he'll own Twitter. It seems remarkable all that's happened since we first spoke about this when he first made the offer a, a ways back now. I mean, why all the drama? If I mean, his lawyers must have told him at some point, you're probably not going to win this. Yeah, I think for Musk, he essentially got cold feet, scapegoat, you know, market turned. I think Twitter ultimately, as he started to do the work, you know, recognized that there were a lot more challenges than maybe he thought at first, tried to get out of the deal. And that just wasn't going to happen. And because I think legally, you know, he kind of crossed the threshold where he was in weak legal standing when it comes to trying to bail out of the Twitter deal. And that's what was happening going into Delaware. But it, this has been a Twilight Zone, a soap opera. And now it ends, ironically, with Musk owning Twitter. Yeah. And with the text messages revealed last week. And so, I mean, it's been no end of fascination for the rest of us, but I can't imagine it was good. Uh, what's happened to his invest? Is this still a good deal for him? I mean, he, he feels like he's harmed his own investment a little bit over the past while. It's never been a good deal. $44 billion for an asset that we believe is worth 25 to $30 billion, never made sense. I mean, and for Musk, it's essentially... He's basically trading caviar for a $2 slice of pizza in terms of getting Twitter. And now the cha- you know, the easy thing for Musk was buying it. The hard thing is going to be fixing it. And that's the problem going forward. This has been a risky bet for Musk. Yeah, what, what happens now? So Twitter, I gather, will accept this deal, right? This is what they wanted. This is what they were fighting for. Is there anything that stands in the way of that? Yeah, I mean, there'll be some legal noise, but we believe next 24 hours, Twitter accepts it. And we believe potentially by next week, Musk owns Twitter. And it's a this is going to be a balancing act for him with SpaceX and Tesla and going to be a bright spotlight front and center to see how this all plays out over the next six to nine months. So what's going to happen to Twitter here? Because there was lots of speculation when he first made the offer about what the impact on the company would be, and then he bailed. And so everyone thought, okay, well, it's going to stay the same. Now he's back in and probably not too happy to have to be back in. So I wonder what his uh, ownership is going to look like. Well, it's ironic because it's like owning a house that you don't want. So for him, it's really going to be the monetization of the Twitter platform. That's been an uphill battle on social media that Twitter's had for years. And you know now it's going to be about trying to increase engagement. The advertising piece, there's a lot of areas that Twitter potentially could go, you know, charging subscribers. And it just comes down to must success stories. The reason he's the richest person in the world, it's because technology. It's SpaceX. It's Tesla. Twitter's a whole nother animal, and that's the problem. 
Yeah, you mentioned it earlier. It's it's not a particularly good deal. He doesn't sound like he wants it. Um, he has lots of other things on the go. Uh, how does he make room for Twitter and all this, and considering what a challenge it's likely to be? Yeah, and I do believe Twitter, he farms out most of that to experts that ultimately will run it over time. For him, it continues to be SpaceX and Tesla. But Twitter, I mean, this is a transformation story. This is going to take a few years to turn around. And I think there's more questions than answers. And then you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So from a political firestorm, I mean, what type of platform is Twitter free speech? Does he let back on certain individuals that we all know that were kicked off? That's going to you know, ultimately play out. And I think it's just going to add to this get out the popcorn and, and watch the show. So you don't think this drama is, is, is nearly over right now? With Musk, there's drama every day on a daily, sometimes an hourly basis. Him owning Twitter, I think that's just the start of what could be just more chapters ahead uh, as he gets himself into more hot water. Do you think he goes into this um, with a more reserved attitude than he started out with, or does he go in gangbusters uh, for Twitter, considering he's had to buy it when he didn't really want it anymore? Yeah, I think it's probably more the latter in terms of the way this all played out. But then it comes down to, like, how do you fix it? And that's going to be the big questions going forward for him because Dorsey and others have not been able to fix it. Why will Musk? Now, Grant, Musk, back against the wall, you never know what he's going to come up out with. But when it comes to the, the Twitter transformation story, I think there's more questions than answers right now. And I think a lot of users are going to really be focused to see the changes, at least in the near term. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of eyes. Users, especially, these are pretty influential users, right? It's politicians and policymakers and thought leaders and all those other people out there. They'll be watching to see what he does. And if he, you know, if, if he makes a wrong step, you might see people bail from it. It kind of feels like he lost both crowds here. You know, those who were suspicious of him to begin with are still suspicious. And those who thought he'd be a great champion of free speech suddenly want, realized he didn't really want the company in the first place. But he's been able to to do what few have, or actually anger both sides of the aisle. And it's not just domestically, it's really international. I mean, when you get to Europe, and it's a tightrope for Musk, even when it comes to Twitter and China. I mean, China is a key part of the Tesla story. That's the other worry. Does owning the Twitter platform start to have a ripple effect or a stain on some of the other areas, political blowback and things like that? And that's why as a Tesla investor, you never even wanted him to get near Twitter. Now he owns it. Yeah, because we saw that yesterday with the blowback about his comments about how to end the war in Ukraine, right? I mean, when he wanders into politics, it hurts. It hurts his investors and it hurts his companies. And it hurts his brand and it's a black eye for him. And just even when we think about the Ukraine tweet, I mean, that's just as a user. Now he's going to own the platform. So what what now? I mean, it feels like this has done some damage to just about everything, although Elon Musk seems to have a way to uh, to escape these things or has in the past. Yeah, have fun. Like he's always had that ability here. He can't because ultimately it goes, it goes into the legal area. And I think that's where he finally hit the brick road. Look, I think he'll own Twitter probably in the next seven to 10 days. Layouts a business plan. I think the overhang on Tesla is starting to wane a bit in terms of the, you know, the overhang there in terms of him potentially selling more stock. And now it's going to be another prove me for Musk, and it just adds to that ecosystem along with SpaceX, boring company, of course, Tesla. 
Yeah, and, and a challenge that uh, ultimately, I guess, you decided wasn't really worth it after you got a look inside, right? Yeah, and just by signing those papers, he was basically trying not to buy a house because of you know of an issue on a windowsill, and that's part of the issue is that legally he really didn't have a leg to stand on, and that started to come front and center the last few weeks. Dan Ives, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. 